Well, it may have been a screaming line drive, and you may have caught it, but you dropped it. No, no, no I'm kidding. <laughs> we, ha- we just have different memories, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's an advantage of getting older. I get to blame everything on that. So I mentioned that uh, my ministry is largely focused on uh, now Bible interpretation, helping people learn how to study the Bible correctly, handling the Word of God correctly, um, and then using that, applying that. That, that area of theology or, or Bible study is called hermeneutics. It's a big technical word, uh, but it simply means uh, a method of Bible study, an approach to interpreting the Scriptures. So that's one area of focus. And then the other area of focus is what I call applied hermeneutics. And that is you take what you know about how to study the Bible and then apply them to evaluating uh, current theological issues and also help people understand why they believe what they believe. So there's apologetics in that as well. My interest in that really began um, really very early on. My background in engineering saved at, uh, at the age of 26 went from drinking three or four hours a night to reading the Bible three or four hours a night. The Lord just did uh, an amazing work, and I just wanted to know what the Word of God had to say. And then at the Bible Institute the next year, uh, having some of the greatest Bible teachers of our generation um, as guest professors there, and then on to Dallas Seminary. My first class, one of my first classes, my first semester is seminary was Bible study methods with Howard Hendricks. I don't know if you know that name, but he is the Mr. Bible study methods of our generation. He's not too long ago went home to be with the Lord, but that set the course for my life and the passion uh, for my life. And I found actually that, that being a, having a background in engineering, engineering is about thinking logically and solving problems and working through things. And I found that it's a, it actually is great training for theology because it helps you work through the Bible and work through issues and think through logically and see, uh, see how, how it all works. And the reason that we we left Hungary, and we never, uh, we never even considered uh, leaving Hungary ever until Charlie came. But now, <laughs> we never, no, we never planned on it. And then the Lord just brought those things together. I mean, it was like out of nowhere within a couple of weeks. That seems to be a pattern in our life, in our lives. Um, because one of the things that I had noticed as a, as a missionary on the field over the years was there was a steady decline in the uh, interest in missions throughout the evangelical world, the conservative evangelical world. I'm not talking about the fringe, I'm talking about the core conservative evangelical world. There was a decline. When we started uh, raising our support to go to the mission field, every conservative evangelical church had a missions conference. There were missionaries regularly in the pulpits. And within about 10, 12 years, that just started really dropping off dramatically. And I've come to realize over the years that everything is about theology. Everything is about theology. Politics is even about theology because your theology, what you believe, informs your worldview. And that informed your politics and your social values and your morals and all those thousands. And I began all those things. It's all about theology. So 
It was in the early 2000s, and I began, I began saying, you know what? I think that the, the evangelical world is, is uh, theoretically evangelical, but pragmatically, practically universalist. Meaning that there was a growing trend within evangelicalism, thinking, hoping, believing that there might be another way of salvation for those who uh, haven't heard the gospel apart from hearing the gospel. Well, if your theology in that realm is changing, your, your passion for missions, your support for missions is going to do what? It's going to start dropping. And then about four years later, after this started dawning on me, there was, this Pew, there was a study came out by the Pew Research Center, 2008, and it was, a, it was a large study of about 3,000 churchgoers in the United States, and about 9,000 of them were self-identified evangelicals. And get this, a full 60% of self-identified evangelicals held to the idea that there might be another way of salvation apart from hearing, understanding, and believing the gospel, that salvation might be able to be found in other religions. Really? I thought evangelical, the word evangelical comes from the word gospel, right? I mean, from the Greek, euangelion, we get gospel and, and evangelical, same root in the Greek. Really? I thought that's who we were. And so this, when this Pew study came out, that was a catalyst for me. Because we'd reached a point, like I said, where I thought we had accomplished what God had set us out to accomplish on the mission field. And I was planning on still staying on the mission field and working with Word of Life, but the Lord orchestrated it other ways, but of ministry that sparked to get me started uh, on this new phase of ministry, the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. And this comes down directly to an issue that Paul was dealing with in 1 Timothy as he wrote to Timothy. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy. Because what the world is saying is that, that doctrine doesn't really matter that much. And that's, that's beginning to permeate the evangelical world as well. Um, one of the things that you'll sometimes hear is that doctrine divides but love unites. That's kind of a mantra. So let's just focus on what we agree on and love one another. Well, the reason doctrine divides is because it separates truth from error. There is such a thing as absolute truth, right? And if there's truth, then there is what? Also error. But, the, but we're living increasingly in a world that says, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. Well, we're going to find out that it actually does matter a whole lot. Does doctrine really matter? Well, yes, it does. So let's turn to 1 Timothy. I know you've got it up there. Now, we're going to be bouncing around just a little bit. Um, and so not everything I have, unless you guys with your program, and I, you probably got a good program, you can probably pop over to another passage pretty quickly. So whatever you guys are able to do, fine. So we're going to be popping over to Acts 19 in a little bit, okay? All right. So let's look at this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. So Paul... 
I don't think it's an overstatement to say one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived, right? And also one of the greatest Bible teachers, greatest theologians that the church has ever known. And, this is, and he's the one God used to get the church started all over uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and southern Europe. And we, all of us sitting here, as I look around at what appears to be relative, uh, relatively uh, similar uh, ethnicities, we're, we're all spiritual descendants of Paul. Did you ever think about that? We're all spiritual descendants of Paul. Timothy was a spiritual descendant of Paul, a first generation. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Now, Timothy had a Jewish mother a Gentile father, uh, but he grew up believing the Old Testament scriptures. His mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, had taught him scriptures from the time he was a child. So he was familiar with the scriptures, whether he was a believer or not, a born-again believer or not. We don't know for sure. So in Paulship or just on in the faith, whether he's talking about his salvation and his discipleship or just discipleship, Paul was his mentor and discipler. Uh, Timothy, I would suggest had probably become Paul's right-hand man in the ministry. Even though Timothy didn't write any of the New Testament, he was probably one of the greatest theologians of the first century. And here's why. If you notice, in several of Paul's letters, he says what? Paul and Timothy. Timothy. Timothy, the technical term for, for Timothy's role part of the time was, was amanuensis. You'll forget it in five seconds, but it's amanuensis. That mean, basically, it means a scribe or uh, someone who takes dictation. So can you imagine going through this process with the Apostle Paul? And, I mean, do you, do you ever find anything that Paul says a little difficult to understand? Peter says that he found some of the things Paul said difficult to understand, right? Can you imagine sitting there and Paul's telling you what to write to the Roman, the church in Rome? And and Timothy sitting there, and he's going along, and he goes, wait a minute, what does that mean? Can you imagine having Paul there while you're doing your Bible study? To be able to turn and say, Paul, what did you mean by that? And having him be able to explain it to you? I mean, that's a pretty good discipleship program, don't you think? A pretty good Bible institute? Amazing. Now, Paul had a ministry team that he traveled with, and Paul writes this letter to Timothy. It's important to grab the historical context here. Paul writes this to Timothy after the end of the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, right? This is after that. Paul has been released. He'll be imprisoned again, and that will be his final imprisonment before he's executed. But So this is in between the imprisonments. And Paul is, has a, quite a large team. And so here you have your right-hand man. Now notice what happens. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Something pretty significant has to be going on in the church in Ephesus if you're going to pull your right-hand man off your team and leave him there. Don't you think? Something's going on. Why would you do that? So Paul travels on and he leaves Timothy in Ephesus. Now what do we know about the church in Ephesus? Well, this is one of those things where you know we kind of read 1 Timothy, but we don't often 
dig into the background. This is why it's good to figure out Bible backgrounds a little bit. Find out where things are happening and why things are happening. And the background of the church in Ephesus is especially important to understand why Paul left Timothy there. So here's where we jump to Acts 19. Find out a little bit about the church in Ephesus. So we're going to Acts 19. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy. We're coming back. So verse, uh, chapter 19, Acts 19. Um, and if you're not able to get there, guys, that's fine too. Uh, no problem. So you don't, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, just listen. We'll, I'll bring you up to speed. So, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Okay, now geographically, let's think where we are here. So here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here is Israel, okay, on the, on the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Then above there, so here you have Africa, and you have, you know, Liberia and Egypt, and then you come up uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and you've got uh, north of Israel, you've got Lebanon, and then you come into modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Ephesus is on the, on the west coast of Asia Minor, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Clear on the other side of Turkey, on the east coast, right? Right on the east coast there. And he found some disciples. Disciples of whom? Well, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So these are believers during the church age who haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. Well, you've got to remember that we're in a transition period. Started in Jerusalem. Remember Acts 1.8? When the Holy Spirit has come, you will receive power and you will be my disciple. The book of what? Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So the book of Acts is a record of this expansion. And it took a while. You had, during, during those first 30 years especially, you've got a mixed group out there. The gospel of Jesus Christ, him being... Uh, uh, him dying and being resurrected from the grave and the Holy Spirit coming as he did on the day of Pentecost. That took a while for that message to get out there. And the book of Acts, that 30-year period, is, is a record of that. So what do you have? Well, you have several types of people out there. You certainly have unbelievers, Jew and Gentile. Then you have believers in Jesus Christ who have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. But you also have Old Testament believers who haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. So you have Old Testament believers like Abraham and Moses and David. They're still out there. The gospel of Christ hasn't gotten to them yet. They're believers in the Old Testament sense. I believe born again. But they've not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They've not been made a part of the church yet. And they will, that will happen when they hear the gospel. And this is what happens. And he says, and, they, and they, so they said to him, we've not heard there's the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. John's baptism? Okay, we're a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. How did you get guys on the east coast of Turkey baptized by John the Baptist? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. 
Faithful Jews were required to Jews were required to go to Israel three times a year to celebrate three of the feasts of the Lord. There are seven feasts of the Lord. They were required to go for three: Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the late spring, early summer, the first fruits of the harvest, and then in the fall, Feast of Tabernacles. So, how did they become disciples of John the Baptist? Well, it tells us they were Jews. They weren't Gentiles. They wouldn't have been baptized by John the Baptist, so they had to be Jews. And they would have been Jews who had been in Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. So they were faithful Jews. They were believing Jews who had been baptized by John the Baptist. So you have the Old Testament, then you have Jesus, and then you have John the Baptist, who's kind of a transition between the two. So these are in the, this is that middle group. So they're almost 100% certain they're Jews, which is important when we get back to 1 Timothy. So there are 12, and they're saved. Into the, and they, Paul preaches the gospel to them. They're, they're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. They become believers in Christ. They believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. They become a part of the church. 12 men. Now, let's slip over to Acts chapter 20. A few years later, sometime later, Paul is, has moved on from Ephesus. He had, actually, he had left and come back, and then he left again, and now he's not going to come back to Ephesus again. So he's, Paul is on his, in Acts chapter 20, Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem from southern Europe to keep one of the feasts. He was a faithful, he still followed that, even though it's not a matter of salvation, it was a matter of uh, him still uh, following the feasts of the Lord. So Paul's on his way back. He doesn't want to get held up in Ephesus again, because he knows if he goes through Ephesus, people are going to want him to stay, and he's, on, he's in a hurry. So he comes to a port city called Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. So he's on his way. He comes to a port city. He calls for the elders in the church in Ephesus. Now when, I mean, CMA is really big, and rightfully so, really big into church planning, right? Rightfully so. So what happens? When you go into an area, you evangelize, you disciple. Who are your first leaders in your church? The first converts. So who would these elders have been? At least some of those 12 men in Acts 19, right? It only makes sense. So here's what we find in, uh, in chapter 20. Uh, go down to verse 17 of chapter 20 of Acts. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, Asia Minor, Turkey, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many fears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. And we're going to find out how long he did that in just a moment. How I kept back nothing from you, proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house. So Paul was known in Ephesus. He was a church planter, a missionary, an evangelist, discipler, teacher, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. So the Lord is orchestrating this whole thing to ultimately get Paul to Rome. So this is part of that process, that the Lord is moving behind the scenes to make this happen. Um, then, take a look at this. Oh, at, um, uh, let's see, verse 25, Acts 20, 25. Indeed, now I, ha- now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching in the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So this is our last time together. So Paul's going to prepare them for what's coming. And he's going to give them some advice and he's going to give them a warning. Here's what we find. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you what? The whole counsel of God. Paul had taught them the word of God. He had taught them doctrine. His intention was that when he left this church would know the Word of God. They would be grounded in the faith. And then verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. For I know this, that after not sparing nurture, savage wolves, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul is warning them, he's saying, guys, there are going to be people who are going to infiltrate the church, they're going to come into the church, and they're going to try to draw the church away from the teaching that you've received from me. They're going to try to draw you away from the Word of God. They're going to be teaching other doctrines. They're going to come in, and we know that wolves come in oftentimes as what? Sheep. (laughs) Savage wolves come looking like sheep. So they they may use the Bible, Right? They may use the Word of God. They hold it up. They may quote. They may put things together in such a way that it seems right at first blush, and then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, something, is, something isn't right here. Something is wrong. They're going to be coming in from the outside. But notice verse 30. Also from among yourselves. From among yourselves from within the church. From among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now there's a couple possibilities here. When it says from among yourselves, it could be just from within the church in general. It could be that a few from among those twelve a few even among the leadership in the church who may rise up with different doctrine. So there's a warning here. Paul says, be careful. And to be honest, isn't it it true that there's more danger to the flock from people who come up on the inside that you know, that you trust? And one of the things I see in my ministry is that there's, the internet makes everything easily accessible, good and bad, right? And I've seen, and I've actually, I, I wrote a book a number of years ago, against, uh, literally against, refuting a book that came out in 2012, the number one Christian book of 2012. 
I wrote a book refuting it, and what happened was there were, there were evangelists for this book. And they would come in, and they faithful members in churches, well-meaning, and they would say, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. And half a church will have read this book before the pastor is even aware, this, aware that such a book exists, and it has wrong teaching in it. And it seems good at first blush until you do the heavy lifting of those say, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And there's videos. How many, of, how many times do you get links to videos? You've got to watch this. Doesn't that happen all the time? Be very careful. Be very careful. Things come packaged in nice packages that look good, sound good on the surface, and if you're not solidly grounded in the Word of God, it can pull you off. And you know what? If you have, an, if you have a ship tied to a dock by anchor ropes, so you have the ropes to the, to the dock, and somebody goes along at night and cuts those ropes. For a little while, that ship doesn't go anywhere, does it? It stays right there. Looking at the ship, you can't even tell that the anchor ropes have been cut. And if you're on the ship, it doesn't even feel like you're moving when it starts moving. But what happens when the wind comes along and the waves come along? What happens? That ship just slowly starts drifting away. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing in the church, broadly. There's this almost imperceptible drift. But after a few months, after a few years, there's that ship. And it's not even recognizable anymore. Now notice this, verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for how long? Three years. Paul was the pastor of the church at Ephesus for longer than he was at any other church in the New Testament. Three years. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I know Charlie's a great pastor, but can you ha imagine having Paul for three years? Now, in three years, when Charlie's been here three years, we'll be right close, right? I mean, it's going to be close. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> It's a, it's a fish story, so it works. Okay. okay. <laughs> Paul is your pastor for three years. I mean, if there was any church in the New Testament that should have been solid, immovable, when it comes to right doctrine, it should have been the church in Ephesus, right? It should have been that church. It wasn't for lack of good teaching. Here's where, again, historical backgrounds make a difference and helps you grasp, grab the, the significance of things that you might otherwise miss. Remember I said Timothy is written after Paul is released from prison the first time? Probably around 61, 62 AD. Paul arrived in Ephesus around 54. Acts 19 is about 54. He was there three years, which takes you to 57. 62 minus 57, my math whizzes, <laughs> five years. In just five years, the church in the New Testament that should have been the most solid doctrinally was in such a condition, back to 1 Timothy, 
was in such a, was in such a shape that Paul has to pull his right-hand man off his team to set things straight. Things were already moving off course. Let me say this. If it can happen to the church in Ephesus, it can happen what? To any church. Any church. Notice this. I urged you when I went to Macedonia, back in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach what? No other doctrine. What other doctrine? Doctrine that I didn't teach you. And the word here is, is, has the idea with command. So Timothy's a relatively young man, probably early 30s. And the, at least some of the men in Acts 19 were probably older. And certainly there would have been people in the church, and the people in the church who would have been in positions of authority to influence the church would probably have been older than Timothy, at least a good number of them. And Paul puts Timothy in the, uh, the, the difficult position of confronting them. How tough is it for a young guy to confront an older guy or a group of older guys over wrong doctrine? How's that going to go? You wouldn't want to be in Timothy's position. And Paul leaves him there. Then he goes on to this, say this. Nor, he, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. This is our first clue that the false teachers have a Jewish background, which is another clue why they might be from among the group of those who were first saved. Because even if it weren't the 12 in Acts 19, where was Paul? Where did Paul always go first? To the synagogues. So the first believers in the, throughout the church would have been of Jewish heritage. So whether it's up from the twelve or whether it's just others who had gotten saved, this gives us a hint. Okay, this is a Jewish theology problem. People aren't recognized. People are trying to pull the church back to the Old Testament way of living and thinking and, and doing things. And this isn't the only place that Paul does that, right? Galatians. You have the book of Hebrews. So this was a, this was a, a problem in the early church. Verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. I love these people. What I'm telling you to do is really tough. But I'm doing it because I care. I'm doing it from, trust me, I'm doing it from right motives. I'm not out to destroy the church. I'm out to keep the church from being destroyed. And sometimes you've got to do the tough thing, the hard thing. And unfortunately, in our world today, too many Bible teachers and pastors aren't doing the hard thing. Because it's hard. It's hard. Verse 6, from which some having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. Verse 7, another clue that we're talking about a Jewish influence here. Desiring to be teachers of the what? Of the law. So it's a an attempt to pull the church back 
away from the gospel of Christ. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So here's the thing about false teachers. They're very convincing, right? An effective false teacher is very convincing. If he weren't convincing, he wouldn't be a problem. And they're generally bold. And they're confident, right? You don't, you don't pull people away by saying, well, you know, I'm not sure this is right, but that's not the way they do it. They listen to me. Let me show you. Let me correct what, you, what you've been taught. And Paul says, to paraphrase it, these guys act like they know what they're talking about, but they don't. They have no clue, but they're convincing people. And then Paul says, verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless. Now, so the problem is not the law itself. And until the book of Hebrews, Jewish believers in Christ during the first century church were still living uh, according to the law as a sort of a way of life because there hadn't been revelation yet. There had been revelation for the Gentiles in, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. God waited some before he made clear that the Jews had no obligations to the law either. And the law was never intended as a means of salvation, so that wasn't it. It was just as a matter of way of life and fellowship with the Lord for those who were believers. So the problem was not with the law itself. It's how you were using the law and misusing the law. It's, it was a problem when we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees misused the law, right? So it's, it was a problem. Now notice this. The law is given for, notice this, the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. This is, I think, the, the longest, most intense list of sins in the New Testament in one short space. How would, you like to be a, how would you like to be a part of a church where these were the besetting sins, lifestyle sins of people in the church? That's not a church you want to be a part of, right? Listen to this. Do this again. Lawless, insubordinate, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, murders of fathers, murders of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, those who have sex outside of marriage, sodomites. There is no sodomite word in the Greek. This is the King James euphemism. It, the, the Greek word means men who have sex with men. That's the bottom line. For kidnappers, liars, perjurers. Now notice this. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to what? Oh, Paul just makes a critical connection. Sinful lifestyles versus right doctrine. How do you correct sinful lifestyles? With right doctrine. And if you get your doctrine wrong, then your worldview is going to be wrong, your theology is going to be wrong, and your view of sin is also going to be wrong. Paul makes a direct connection between right teaching and wrong living. 
And then he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, in the rest of 1 Timothy, Paul is going to bring up this theme of right doctrine. So he starts it off, you have a group of people who are, who are threatening to pull the church off its foundation, to lead the church astray. And there are corrective measures that Paul puts into place. Uh, he, he makes the controversial statement about women being in positions of authority in chapter 2. Remember, that's in the flow of Paul's argument. So just keep that in church. It's in the flow of Paul's argument concerning wrong doctrine coming into the church, not because women aren't equally good teachers or equally good theologians, but Paul brings up the order of creation and that Eve was deceived. So that's part of this mix. And then in chapter 3, notice what he does. He talks about elders again. Well, there were elders who were saved. There were elders that Paul met with in Acts 20. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a what? Good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, nor not greedy for money, not gentle, or but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Now, if notice the phrase "able to teach." Now, there are some who take this passage to mean someone who has the gift of teaching. In other words, if they're going to be a a spiritual leader in the church, they need to have the gift of teaching. I don't think that that works in context. And the reason is, everything else is a learned lifestyle choice. Everything else in the list. It has to do with your worldview, your perspective, the way you live your life, what you know, how you live. So it's not, a, it's not talking about a giftedness. It's someone who is qualified to teach. That's the point. You can have spiritual leaders in the church who aren't necessarily good teachers who can stand up and, and, and are comfortable doing that. There are some great leaders who are not comfortable standing up and teaching in public. But they know right doctrine, and that's the point in the flow of the context. You've got to have spiritual leaders in the church who know right doctrine so that they can come in. The church from wrong doctrine when it starts to come in. If it starts to come in. Keep the church on track. That's the whole point. Jump over to chapter 4 and we're about done. Chapter 4. Now, in the, in, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. They'll move away from apostolic teaching. They'll move away from the word of God, giving heed to deceiving spirits and what? Doctrines of demons. This is demonic. This is against the church of God. Threatening to pull believers away from Christ. It's demonic. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he lists some things forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from certain uh, foods. So again, I think it's a hint at Jewish influence here, pulling uh, believers back into 
uh, try, attempting to pull them back into the law of Moses. Then go down to, uh, let's see, what do we want to look at? Um, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to what? Doctrine. Needs to be a priority. Teach your people. Fathers, mothers, teach your children. Ladies, older ladies, teach the younger ladies. What? Right doctrine and godly living. And the two go hand in hand. They're inseparable. You lose one, you're going to lose the other. And then he says in verse 15 and 16, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things. Could say marinate on these things, right? <laughs> Meditate on these things. Soak in them. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Point being, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And we've got to be, as leaders in the church, we have to be leaders that others can look up to and follow. If people can't follow me and follow the Lord at the same time, they have no business following me. Take heed to yourself and to the what? Doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you save both yourself and those who hear you. Doesn't mean, this isn't salvation in the eternal life sense. This is salvation in the deliverance sense. You will deliver your church, your people, the people you're responsible for from the terrible scourge of wrong teaching. You'll deliver them so that they can live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. It's a problem around the world. It's a reason I started my ministry. This in this, what seems to probably be the last phase of my ministry life. We'll see, Lord knows. He has a habit of moving us quickly, but this seems to be the trajectory. And this is what I'm passionate about. Helping people. Helping people to handle the Word of God correctly. Helping people to understand the importance of right doctrine and to, and to know how to get it right from the Word of God. Because that's the only source of authority. I'm not an authority. My authority only is to the degree that I accurately reflect what the Word of God says. So I, I trust that the Lord will bless you. You've got a, a great pastor in, uh, in, uh, in Charlie, and uh, he was taught well, because I taught him. But no. <laughs> he and PJ, no right doctrine. And I trust the leadership in the church knows right doctrine. And I trust that parents, young and old, and grandparents know right doctrine and are learning right doctrine and growing deeper in the Word of God because you are the beacon of light in this, at least one of the beacons of light in this community, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for uh, its power, its example, its exhortation. I pray that you would bless this church and the leadership and the families and moms and dads and grandparents that this church would stay on target, right, 
knowing and rightly dividing the word of truth.